This is Kick-Ass News. I'm Ben Mathis. The 2020 presidential race is going to be the most high-stakes election in at least a generation, and it all starts in Iowa. Spotify presents Uncommitted, Iowa 2020, an original podcast from Vice News. Join host Antonia Hilton and Vice News reporters as they break down all the Iowa caucuses. Listen to Uncommitted, Iowa 2020, every Tuesday, free on Spotify. And now, on with the show. Hi, I'm Ben Mathis. Welcome to Kick-Ass News. Since his election to the U.S. Senate in 2006, Ohio's Sherrod Brown has sat on the Senate floor at a mahogany desk with a proud history. And now, in a new book, he tells the story of eight of the senators who were there before him and says that despite their flaws and frequent setbacks, each made a decisive contribution to the creation of a more just America. His book is called Desk 88, Eight Progressive Senators Who Changed America, and today Senator Brown joins me on the podcast to talk about it. He reveals how he first learned about the rich history of his desk in the U.S. Senate and how he grappled with some of the contradictions and controversies of the men who came before him, including one senator who was a former KKK member turned champion of civil rights. We discuss the singing cowboy who became a one-term senator from Idaho who once spent a night in Bull Connor's jail in Alabama, and a senator from Wisconsin who was a legendary penny pincher and never missed a vote. Then Senator Brown talks about getting to a more movement-oriented definition of progressivism, his belief in the dignity of work, and why he feels it's a winning message for Democrats running against Donald Trump in 2020. Plus, he opens up about his own decision to stay out of the Democratic presidential primary, whether or not he might reconsider in light of recent calls for him to jump into the race, and how he plans to approach a potential impeachment trial in the U.S. Senate. Coming up with Senator Sherrod Brown in just a moment. Mortimer Adler, the sort of intellectual of the 20th century that founded Aspen, he he wrote a book called How to Read a Book, and he <laughs> um, he said when you don't write in a book, you honor the the craft of the printer. When you write, you honor the author. Oh, that's funny. And he um, <laughs> and he he could he could take a book. And I, I I tried to do this, and it's just too cumbersome. But he would do all kinds of notes, and then he would do cross reference <laughs> of things in the beginning. Really, and he could pick up the book ten years later and spend an hour and really get. A huge amount out of it. Oh, that's interesting. That's, that's how he. That's one reason he was. Yeah. Just so broad and deep. I always feel bad because I feel like I mangle an author's oh, book oh, when no, they come I in. Yeah, I, I write on all, unless it's a library. Unless the yeah. library owns it. Yeah. <laughs> well, I'll give you a quick little intro here today. I'm talking with Sherrod Brown, who is the senior senator from Ohio, an office he's held since 2006. For 11 of those years, he's been working on and off on a book about a fascinating piece of Senate history that he sits at every day in Washington. It's called Desk 88, Eight Progressive Senators Who Changed America. Senator Brown, welcome. Ben, good to be here. Thank you. Well, I have to tell you, you know, right before the interview, my wife made me very self-conscious about this because she said, are you nervous about your desk? 
And I, I asked her, what do you mean? She says, well, he's coming over to your office and he's going to see your desk and no one interesting or significant has ever sat at your desk. So, Why would your wife say such wah, a thing? So. Yeah. <laughs> now, you know, on the, face, funny. Yeah, on the face of it, a 354 page about a desk might not sound like the most gripping read, but apparently some pretty interesting and very significant men have sat at the very same desk that you now occupy in the Senate. How did you first learn about the rich history of Desk 88? For, thank you. For first, um, it was all men. It was all white men. Uh, that's what the Senate's history has mostly been. And I mm-hmm. would, if we were doing this interview in the 100 years from now, we would probably talk about the next eight senators who were women and people of color and probably more progressive because I think when a Senate looks more like this country, it, it tends to be. I uh, My first week on the job or first, maybe a second week, we were – the 10 freshmen, because it's all done by seniority, were, mm-hmm. were deciding where we were sitting on the, in the, on the Senate floor and the 10 desks that were left. And it occurred to me, you're not, you know, you're not sitting behind a, a post at Chavez Ravine. You're, <laughs> you're, there's a good view everywhere. So yeah. someone had told me that senators um, had carved their names, a bit like middle school, carved their names in the desk drawer. So I started pulling out desk drawers and I saw about the fourth desk I looked at, I saw McGovern, South Dakota, Gore, Tennessee. Um, Hugo Black of Alabama and just one word, Kennedy. So Ted, then in the Senate in 2007, I I said, Ted, come here a second. And he walked over and I said, which brother's desk is this? And he said, well, I guess it's got to be Bobby's because I have Jack's. (laughs) And so I just started thinking about these senators. My my wife, um, who is a a journalist, I knew that how much I liked history and she went on went to eBay and started ordering eight or ten or twelve history books of the Senate about senators or about its history oh, cool. all of them out of print pretty much all of them really inexpensive like four dollars or two dollars a book because <laughs> nobody was reading them and that's kind of how I got started and over time over these 10 or 11 years I've read um, in the bibliography you see that 150 160 books about yeah. the Senate done a hundred interviews um, and my my favorite interview we can talk later about was about a gentleman that lives in this county, but we can get to that right. in a moment. Yeah, and that's interesting that it's kind of just a free-for-all among the senators when it comes to picking a desk. I always assumed that it just got passed down by the state. Yeah, it doesn't in part because I, I beat a Republican incumbent, okay. and there's a middle aisle in the Senate, and— if you stand in front of this, if you stand where the presiding officer sits, more or less in the front of the Senate, you look out. You can tell by looking at the middle aisle. If you're standing in front to the left, is the are the Republicans to the right of the Democrats? And when I can, in by 2009, the Senate was 60 Democrats, 40 huh. Republicans. So the 60 were congested seats put closely together. The 40 were more sparsely arranged because huh. they literally unscrew the desk if, if. Um, if I were to resign and the Republican governor appointed my replacement, um, they would unscrew a Democratic desk, maybe mine, maybe huh. not, and move it to the Republican side. So um, that, okay. I mean, that's all. Nobody wow. really cares about any of that, but you ask. <laughs> I do. Maybe yeah. your wife does. Yeah, and she talked about desks. But yeah. so, so anyway, so I just um, – I just and I, I think most most senators, as I found since this book came out, and most of my colleagues and some of them knew I was writing it. I mean, I didn't didn't make it a big deal, but did it at home when lots of time at home over the over the years. Um, that that they many senators hadn't even bothered much to look at who signed their desk because you have all huh. these committee reports and stationery and stuff in the desk, and you don't really think much about who yeah, sat there or what. And dig. you know, our society doesn't pay a lot of attention to history, as you know. I yeah. can tell you do when I walked in here and you talked about the building and yeah. the family 
place in Pasadena oh, I'm a history and all that. Nut. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Now, uh, progressive is in the subtitle of the book, and that's a term that seems to get thrown around a lot these days. I feel like it's almost taken on a different meaning than what you're talking about in this book. It's sort of become a broad synonym for the liberal wing of the Democratic Party as opposed to being tied to a specific social movement. What's your definition of progressive? Well, I, I, I say in historical terms this, that, and I write a good bit about this. Ralph Waldo Emerson said history's a, a, an ongoing battle for decades, maybe centuries, of, of he used the word conservators and innovators. We would say conservatives and liberals are conservatives and progressives. And, and um, one of the reasons that, that this book is really about hope in a lot of ways and as I talk about these eight senators and, and do commentary about them related to today, um, is that, um, that, 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 that innovators, that progressives don't win very often. There have really been three progressive errors in the last hundred years. They, 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 we don't win often. They don't last long. But the victories are huge. So you think about everything from workers' compensation to minimum wage to Medicare to civil rights to protections for the disabled to Pell Grants to the Wilderness Act. Um, so many things have happened um, in pro these progressive eras. And then there's a there's a public reaction sometimes, um, sometimes against them. But these 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 um, institutions or programs or changes last pretty much forever. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, even though like in Social Security, it was passed in 1936. It didn't. The first first person didn't get a check till 1940. So there was a lot of opposition in those four years. Why are Why are you taking money out of my paycheck when I don't see anything? And nobody in my family's lived to 65 anyway. So why is this such a great thing? So you can see that they react to these positive kinds mm -hmm. of things. Yeah, it's always been a gradual fight and a bit of a progression. And even some of the senators in this book kind of went on personal journeys uh, from pretty controversial beliefs to becoming progressives. For instance, you know, I was surprised to learn that there were a number of progressive Democrats who were big supporters of McCarthyism. In fact, Robert Kennedy even worked for McCarthy. And you also have a senator in here who originally was a KKK member before he joined the Senate. How do you reconcile those well, contradictions? That, that's a really good question. And I, I throw a couple of ways. And the, the, the best, you pick the best two examples. Hugo Black, uh, KKK member, 1926, elected to the Senate. He said later, I join any organization where I get votes. So opportunistic. And there's a lesson from that. What kinds of things people will do just for their, you know, for ambition. Uh, Black then took a while and he, but 30 years later on the Supreme Court, he was burned in effigy at his law school, Tuscaloosa, where he graduated from um, because he was one of the major forces behind the first big Supreme Court decision on integration, um, Brown v. Board of Education. So wow. um, you, you, don't, you don't excuse or justify where he was. Um, he very well might have spent his whole life trying to make up for it. He was one of the he was probably the great civil libertarian on the bench in the mid 20th century. Uh, mid to late 20th century. Um, but uh, and Kennedy started off as a McCarthy, as you said, a, McCar a lawyer in the McCarthy committee, probably the job. I assume he got the job because his dad was close to McCarthy. Mm -hmm. um, Kennedy then wiretapped Dr. King in 62 or three, I think 63. Kennedy, what we 
what a lot of us love about Bobby Kennedy, the last three years of his life, um, he, he more than made up for it. So mm-hmm. um, that's, that's, but you've got to give, if you're going to ask people to change, you've got to give them, you got to give them credit when they do mm-hmm. and you got to embrace their change, but you don't forget, particularly if it's something as awful as the KKK. Yeah. And Bobby Kennedy, he's one, it's hard to know what to make of him sometimes because in his day, particularly when he was a Senator and AG, you know, he was sort of ruthless, a calculating guy. And then he became this big progressive leader and Hugo Chavez and the workers here in California. What was the turning point? Was it well, Jack's death? I, I can't. I mean, so many books have been written about Bobby Kennedy that I don't pretend to. Um, I mean, I, I never met him. The only senator of these eight that I met was George McGovern. I got to know him sort of well in the last years of his life. Um, Kennedy is certainly everybody says how he changed because of his brother's death. I um, mean, the tragedy he had as a family, I mean, you think of all the tragedies of, well, mm. of, that Ted had to go through, even yeah. more obviously than Bobby. Um, but but Ted, but Bobby, um, I, I think it was that, but I, I, I right here, one night my wife and I had dinner with uh, Marion Wright and her husband, Peter Edelman, Marion Wright, Edelman, and Peter. And Peter was an advance man for Ted Kennedy, or for Bobby Kennedy in the 60s, um, a staff person before he ran for president and stayed with them. And uh, they were, uh, Marion Wright Edelman was running Head Start in Mississippi because the segregationist governor would not let it in the state through state government. And so um, she had no use for the Kennedys, as she said, because uh, John Kennedy had, had nominated really bad segregationist judges that the Mississippi Democratic Senator Chairman of Judiciary would accept. And so um, the civil rights the, the the civil rights movement got no help from the Kennedy judges. The best judges were Republican judges from Eisenhower in the South in those days. So she um, didn't have much use for the Kennedys. She didn't really care this guy Peter Edelman that was showing up. Um, she ended up marrying Peter Edelman, but she grew to like Bobby because she saw an immense capacity for empathy that she said she never really saw. She's almost never seen in her life, let alone from a U.S. senator. When he walked into this very rundown shack with some of the poorest people in the nation and he picked up a little baby that had sores and dirty. And she said, I wouldn't have wanted to pick up this baby and said, Bobby sent all the um, all the press out. He didn't want this filmed. And she said she just saw something uncommon in him. Now, you mentioned that you had met McGovern. I think he's the only one of these eight yeah. that you actually met. What was he like? Um, I, very nice. And I, I mean, I, I got involved in politics in part from the, the war move, the anti-war movement in the early 70s and, and, and George McGovern. And McGovern had a good sense of humor and could laugh at himself. I mean, he tells a story that you know, he lost, when he lost in 1972, he won only Massachusetts and the District of Columbia. Right. Um, Twelve years later, Mondale won only Minnesota, his home state in the District of Columbia and Mondale and McGovern were friends, both senators. And Mondale said to McGovern, "said When do you ever get over this?" And and the year after it happened, and McGovern said, "I don't know. I'll let you know." McGovern, <laughs> I mean, if you if you lose that embarrassingly, that's yeah. I assume that's such a scar on your psyche that yeah. you won one state as yeah. president to, to run for president. So I, I mean, I, I have no idea what that's like, and we'll never find out. Yeah. But um, so McGovern could laugh at himself a little bit, but yeah. a good man, a good man, and he he told the story when he met. He did a lot of things on world hunger, and. Right. He, um, one day, I mean, well, what he talked to him one day, he met Pope John the 23rd and, and he said to him, uh, when you, Mr. McGovern, when you meet your maker, you can tell him that you fed the poor. 
and <laughs> coming from Pope John the Twenty Third, that's it's a pretty bad. great story. But I, one day, um, I was presiding over the Senate my first year, and McGovern walked in the back back of the hall, the Senate chamber, and former senators have access to do that. And, and I asked the pages, fifteen, sixteen years old. There were a number of them nearby at the front of the chamber. I said, "You know who that is?" and None of them recognized him. I said, his name's George McGovern, wow. blank. None of them heard of him. <laughs> and I, I closed that chapter by saying, you know, people may have forgotten McGovern, just like the, you know, the words of Marcus Aurelius, but um, he, uh, he, what he did to feed the poor and, and because of McGovern and Bob Dole, his partner in this, uh, millions and millions of school children, uh, poor, in poor, era, poor countries around the world get one hot meal a day. So they don't remember his name. The those families don't know who this guy George McGovern was, but look at the impact he had. Yeah, and that, that's kind of what I try to show with each of these eight senators, mm -hmm. the, the long-term impact they have as progressives. Yeah. Probably the most colorful character in the book is a one-term senator called Glenn Taylor. He was a singing cowboy, right? Singing cowboy of Kuskia. And um, his son, I, I, I mentioned earlier, so it may have, been, may have been Orange County, not L.A. County. I can't remember. But his um, Glenn Taylor and his wife named Dora formed the Glenn Dora Singers. And Glenn, <laughs> Glenn Taylor toured the countryside in Idaho. He had his, his jobs in his life. He was a sheet metal worker. He was a toupee maker. He was a <laughs> construction worker. He was a singing cowboy. And he was a U.S. senator for a term. He ran seven times for office. He won once. He was courageous. Um, his son, Dora spelled backwards, A-Rod, like the baseball player. <laughs> uh, was, I called him. He's a, 10 years ago, dentist and in, in, retired dentist in, I think, in Orange County. And he um, told me about his dad. And the story he told me that I loved was his dad was the running mate for Henry Wallace in the progressive ticket in right. 1948. His dad and his, his mom and dad, Glenn and Dora, and A-Rod, the son who was maybe – 15, then 16, went to Birmingham, Alabama to campaign for the ticket. He went into a, an integrated audience, came in through a door described by A-Rod as colored only, walked into this door. He was arrested and he was he was put that night, he spent that night in Bull Connor's jail. Wow. And Where MLK he, Bull Connor was, right? was, the, was the horrible sheriff police commissioner that, that turned the dogs and the fire hoses mm -hmm. on, on Dr. King right. and other <laughs> demonstrators. Wow. I mean, you usually don't hear about the whites who broke the color ban the other way around, do you? <laughs> right, right, right. And Glenn, Glenn Taylor knew yeah. what he was doing, I assume. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And he knew that that was the right thing to do. And he also, he the way his son, and of course I never met Glenn Taylor, but the way that A-Rod Taylor described it to me is his dad was pretty scared riding in this police cruiser. Oh, yeah? Um, not with Bull Connor, probably one of his deputies. And these deputies didn't look kindly on some Yankee. Um, coming to coming to Alabama and trying to trying to change things. Yeah, and he's a great example of a politician who voted his conscience and not necessarily his constituency. In fact, <laughs> there's a great quote in here by him. He says, "At one time, I stated on the floor of the Senate that I was going to vote my convictions as though I never expected to come back." All I can say is I did vote my convictions and I did not come back. <laughs> yeah, he was. A, he, he did a lot of things. I mean, he probably wasn't the, the best politician in terms of the skills of politics, but he showed he showed great courage. And mm -hmm. he, his state had less than one percent African American population. Um, one of the great things he did in 1947, he had been in the Senate exactly two years. This was the first day of the session in 47. He'd been elected in 44, and there was the most heinous. Um, possibly the most heinous senator ever, a guy named Bilbo from Mississippi, former governor, senator, about to start his third term, I believe, in Bilbo. Um, and he stood up, uh, Glenn Taylor stood up and 
demanded that he not be seated and then gave a, gave a litany of why yeah. he should not. He was persuasive enough that they all put it on hold, uh, and um, he never was seated. He died several months later, but he was never seated for that third term. And it shows the kind of courage because it did mm-hmm. nothing for him at home politically, and it yeah. offended a whole lot of other senators. The whole Southern Democratic bloc, I'm sure, were probably every one of them was unhappy about it, or certainly most of them. So he was a gutsy guy. Yeah, and he was a big advocate for labor rights coming from a state, a state that, that probably had, had very little yep. manufacturing, exactly I guess. Right. Yep. Yeah. Now, my other favorite in this book, in terms of just being kind of a character, is Senator William Proxmire. Now, he proves that Republicans don't own the issue of cutting government waste. In fact, I would venture a guess that he could probably top any Republican when it came to penny pinching. Tell us a little about yeah, him. Yeah, he started some award that was pretty well known <laughs> at the time called the Golden Fleece Award. And he would he would often, in a there's a little demagoguery around this one, he would point to something that looked like a waste of money um, that that scientists were researching in the federal government. Sometimes mm-hmm. it was a big airplane mm-hmm. that the Defense Department wanted but shouldn't have gotten maybe. Other times it was some scientific research. And you can take some things out of context and make them look pretty stupid. And, sure. and he, did, he did that pretty effectively. But he was a guy that um, he ran for, the, ran for governor three times. He moved to Wisconsin in order to run for office. He looked at the map and he thought, here's where I can get a foothold. Grew up in Chicago. Um, Went to school in the East, moved to Wisconsin, got elected to the legislature, immediately started running for governor, lost three times in a row. Um, and then he happened to be in the right place, and he won the special election for Senator Joe McCarthy's seat in 1957. And he, he, never, he never stopped running. He was, he was, one, he was the most um, political in the sense that he, he would go home every single weekend. He would shake hands all day long. He would. He never had to spend any money in his campaign. The only money he spent was to send back, to buy stamps and envelopes, to send checks back to contributors, because he had met. He had just met so many people. The um, Herb Cole, the his successor, um, as a private citizen, a Jewish Jewish man. There's a reason I say that was in Easter Sunday was at a diner in Eau Claire somewhere in Wisconsin. Herb Cole was, and and um, Bill Proxmire walked in Easter Sunday, walked table to table, shaking hands. I'm Bill Proxmire. I'm Bill Proxmire. Even on Easter Sunday, he never stopped doing that. It made him very reelectable, mm-hmm. but it, as the book points out, it, it, it didn't mean that he looked back thinking that was kind of the way to live his life. Yeah. I think he also had the, what, the record for the most consecutive roll call votes or something? Yeah, he never missed a vote. Yeah. He, um, for, and he, he also, he was also really tenacious. And yeah. um, there's a, there was a uh, sort of a human rights um, arms control uh, resolution that most countries in the world had, had ratified and the U.S. hadn't. And he went to the floor day after day after day after day after day for years until he finally got it. And so you, you admire the kind of senator he was that way. Yeah. Not popular with other senators, a little eccentric, um, kind of a, a both a show horse and a, and, a, and a workhorse, but especially a show horse. And senators don't like other senators who are show horses. I mean, people don't yeah. like hot dogs, right, generally. And whether you're <laughs> yeah, playing sports right. or whether you're in media like you are sure. or whether you're in politics. Al Gore Sr. is also in this book. And he's not quite so dramatic as Hugo Black in terms of his turnaround on race, but he also went through a bit of a transition from a civil rights detractor to a defender of civil rights. Uh, how did he come around on that? Yeah, issue? A, bit, a bit uneven. He, 1956, 
early in his Senate time, he refused when Strom Thurmond tried to publicly embarrass him, refused to sign the Southern Manifesto. Only three senators refused to sign it. And that was a statement by Southern conservative segregationist Democrats in those days against the against Brown v. Board of Education. Um, but then he then he voted. Again, but that was good. Then he voted against the vote. The Civil Rights Act in 1964, even though his son, Albert, who was a teenager then and his daughter, who was a little older, just begged him to vote for it. The next year he voted for he was reelected. The next year he voted for the Voting Rights Act. He was the only Tennessee politician of either party in either house to come out against the Vietnam War. And then he opposed the two racist picks to the Supreme Court that Nixon had, Carswell and Hainsworth. So it just appeared that Gore at some point in his career, in his third term, decided um, life's too short. If I lose because of what I'm doing, I'm going to do the right thing. So uh, you can see that maturity and that um, attitude in a number of these that, that got better, senators that got better with age. Certainly the three you brought up, Black, mm-hmm. um, Black, Gore, and Kennedy certainly did that. Uh, were there any senators who sat at your desk who you wish hadn't sat at your um, desk? That you good, I haven't thought of that up? question. Um, I got to think through. I, I nobody that I think sat there that was a particularly bad bad guy. Really? I think, and again, they were all white men because those were the eras, and that was the era, and that will change in the future. Um, one guy was a Louisiana senator whose name I can't even remember. That was pretty lost to history. Um, pretty bad, but he also helped to start the National Institutes of Health. So, huh. I mean, there's, there, people are yeah. are complex creatures, and there weren't many Southern senators in those days that were very good on civil rights. Yeah. They just weren't, yeah. and some of them some of them were particularly hateful. Gore was never that. Gore was, but he voted wrong on some things. Mm-hmm. But he he really, I think, tried to make it up. Um, with the rest of his career, particularly his third term. Uh, were there Republicans who sat at your desk? Uh, no, well? I don't believe no, any Republicans. None. So okay. they, as I said, they'll unbolt the desks and move oh, them, right, but most right. desks don't get moved. Okay. And, and, um, and no Ohioans sat at my desk, no huh. Republican to my knowledge, no women, and that, that, that's what the desk was because yeah. that was the Senate. Something that comes up in this book, and it's sort of a consistent theme that you often talk about, is the dignity of work. Do you think that Democrats running for president in 2020 who are trying to win back those working class white men in states like yours would do well to talk more about the dignity of work? Yeah, when I uh, I do when I talk dignity of work, I'm not talking about white male union firefighters mm-hmm. only. I sure. I mean it's the dignity of work. It's people that clean this right. building and people that prepare food right. at a big insurance company. And well, the phrase people, comes from yeah, Martin Luther King. Martin Luther King, right? King yeah. and actually right. it came. It, it, it's popularized by King. It was first mentioned by a, a pope named Leo the Thirteenth, the Labor Pope, mm-hmm. in the 1890s, 1900 that that era. Um, during the to kind of respond the church's response to the industrial revolution um, a bit late but nonetheless um, it, it, in the dignity of work is is it, to me it, it, it's you know if you honor work you respect work whether you punch a clock or swipe a badge or whether you work for tips or whether you're working uh, you know in in, in, in in a hospital or wherever you're working um, it's so important that we honor and respect work and we talk about it and to me it's you win elections if you if you run a campaign through the eyes of thinking of the voters through the eyes of workers and if you govern that way and hmm. I mean I'm convinced yeah. that Democrats win when we do that. Um, it's how you um, it's how you win enough you win enough Trump voters, and you don't. It doesn't mean you you never compromise on on gun safety. You don't compromise on civil rights, but um, too often I think 
neither party neither party speaks to work the way that we should in yeah. rewarding work and honoring work and respecting and king one of the things king said was no job is menial if it pays an adequate wage so my job as an elected official is do everything i can um on wages on minimum wage on the overtime rule on on a national labor relations board that, that has an even level playing field all those things mm-hmm. now you personally declined to run for the democratic nomination in 2020 but apparently your wife has recently said that she's been getting a lot of calls for you to reconsider. Now that Biden's momentum seems to be slowing down a little bit and the more aggressively socialist wing of the party seems to be gaining ground, can you envision a scenario where you might feel compelled to step back in and carry the flag of the more centrist Democrats? Yeah. First, I, I don't call myself a centrist. Okay. I mean, in every way, I, I'm, I'm a progressive. I voted against the Iraq war. I That's did true. for marriage right. equality 20 years, civil rights, rights, pro-choice, um, voted against the Patriot Act um, and on progressive issues in the workplace. So um, I, I just, I did, it, Joe Biden had nothing to do with my decision. And I just, you've got to really, really want to be president to do it. And there's a, there's an old saying, I don't know if I put this in the book or not, I don't remember if um, it, it, there was a saying from a Vermont senator decades ago that the only cure in the president for the presidential virus in the U.S. Senate is embalming fluid. I mean, once you decide to do it, you're, you're, it sort of sucks you in. And I, yeah. I thought about it for two months. Oh, yeah. I thought there was a path as a progressive from a Midwest industrial state that's, that has as, uh, as progressive a record on, on guns and choice and mm. women's health and gay rights and civil rights as anybody in the field and more progressive than almost all in the field. It just wasn't something I really, mm. really wanted to do in the end. Well, it's not too late. Apparently, well, Deval Patrick's yeah, yeah, getting yeah, in. Yeah, I so. that, no, thank you. <laughs> yeah. Well, I want to ask you about impeachment. Uh, sure. Impeachment hearings have begun in the House, and all indications so far are that Congress will vote to send articles of impeachment to the Senate, at which point you will become one of 100 jurors mm-hmm. with the fate of the president in your hands. Have you given much thought to how you'll approach that process and what in your mind rises to the level of impeachable offenses? Yeah, I, I first of all, I think the president should should be impeached. Mm-hmm. And I will separate that from the Senate trial should be impeached. And that's comparable. I'm not a lawyer, but comparable in the, in the courtroom of of an indictment um, because he did something Richard Nixon didn't even do. He he solicited a bribe basically um, for uh he solicited a bribe from a foreign country, and that's he said Richard Nixon never even did that. Um, I reserve what would ha- what I think later because um, I I would be one of a hundred jurors. We would listen to the evidence. We would also listen to the prosecutor. Also listen to the president's defenders, his lawyers, perhaps him too himself. Uh, and we make the decision based on the evidence. It really is. It's not what public. It's not what public opinion tells you it's it's based on the evidence just like in a courtroom and i would hope that all 99 of my colleagues would look at it the same way not to go in with preconceived notions um, if you think the president is guilty then you vote that way if you remove him from office if you think he's not you vote that way and i, I the evidence while we see a lot of evidence on television i've read a lot of documents we haven't seen nearly everything that will be presented to us on the bribery issue what offends you most morally, this idea that he solicited a bribe from the president of the Ukraine or the uh, the idea that he essentially bribed the president of Ukraine or was was withholding aid in a sort it's of just bribe? A, the whole thing is, yeah. is pretty um, smells really bad. I mean, you think yeah. about a president of the United States for his gain. First of all, upholding up three hundred ninety million dollars to protect the Ukrainians from Russian inv- invasion. 
And I mean, Russia, we thought Russia could be a friendly country. We thought in the early 90s that passed pretty quickly um, over about a decade. And it's clear that Putin is not much different from Brezhnev, not much different from Stalin, not much different from Lenin, not much different from the czars in terms of autocracy and totalitarianism. I mean, some certainly Stalin, the worst of the whole group. But but um, we have um, this president's this this president's dealings with so much of the foreign policy he conducts in the end helps Russia. And often it undermines the United States. It hurts our allies. It hurts Israel. It just consistently seems to be something Russia likes. And I don't think we know everything we need to know. Yeah, that's for sure. Well, we shall stay tuned. Once more, the book is called Desk 88, Eight Progressive Senators Who Changed America. Senator Sherrod Brown, thanks so much for thanks. talking Good with me. Good interview. Me. Thanks, Ben. It was great. Thank you. Thanks again to Senator Sherrod Brown for joining me on the podcast. Order his new book, Desk 88, Eight Progressive Senators Who Changed America, on Amazon, Audible, or wherever books are sold. And follow him on Twitter at at S-E-N Sherrod Brown. If you enjoyed today's podcast, be sure to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts and rate and review us while you're there. Five-star ratings and detailed reviews are one of the best ways for new listeners to discover the show. You can also follow us on Facebook or on Twitter at at KickAssNewsPod and recommend us to your friends on your social media. For more fun stuff, visit KickAssNews.com and I welcome your comments, questions, and suggestions at comments at KickAssNews.com. For now, I'm Ben Mathis and thanks for listening to KickAss News. KickAssNews.